Uh, let us pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, we glorify your name. As we bow our heads in prayer, we recognize that you are a holy and perfect God. You are the giver of life, the author of salvation. You are the God who died on the cross and victoriously defeated death and conquered the grave. You are our good and loving Heavenly Father, and you are here with us in this very moment. Lord, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for the blood of Christ shed on that cross, and we thank you for the grave that is empty. We thank you that we are saved not by our works or by our righteousness, but solely by grace, solely by the works accomplished by our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that even when our hearts stray away from you, even when we doubt your goodness and even in the moments of our deepest failures and shame, your grace is deeper so much still. Uh, Lord, we ask that you will be the strength and comforter to those in this church who feel that their faith and minds are weak. We ask that you will be the light and joy to those who feel as though they are walking in darkness and hopelessness. We ask that you will reveal your goodness and power to those who have yet to experience and know the depth of your love. We ask that you will continue to encourage and sanctify those who are faithfully fighting the good fight. But despite the different seasons we are walking in, uh, we ask that you will continuously remind us of the death, the life, and the perse perseverance of our Lord Jesus Christ, and that the power that and the power that rests in His name, that we may um, confidently surrender each decision and each moment of our day to the God who cares for us and loves us so unconditionally. Lord, we humbly ask that you build our church to become a body of Christ that prays. We pray that you will guide our church to be a church that honors and upholds the word of God even when no one is looking. We pray that you will give wisdom and patience to our teachers and parents to raise your little ones with reverence for Christ, that we may be saturated with prayers, that they may be saturated with prayers as they grow to be leaders in the next generation. We pray that you will lead us to be a church that understands the heart um, of the Father for the lost and hurting, that we will be willing and ready to bring the gospel message to wherever you may call us. As we continue to worship here this morning, Lord, we pray for anointing of your spirit upon Pastor Jason Young. As he delivers your message, may he speak words of truth with boldness and authority. And as he answers the questions that may arise, um, we pray that you will grant him wisdom and a gentle spirit to lead us in this time. Lord, would you awaken our tired and sleepy minds and bodies to hear and respond to your message, that we may leave this place praising you for your faithfulness and be encouraged um, to live each day of this week for the glory of God. And lastly, Lord, we pray for the persecuted churches around the globe, um, for those who choose to worship you in the midst of unimaginable hardships and sufferings. We thank you for revealing yourself to them in such powerful and unshakable ways, and we boldly ask that you will continue to sustain them and draw, near to, draw nearer to them, that their convictions may not be moved by their circumstance, and that their joy and love for Christ may be seen by their enemies and those around them, that Christ may be known in those cities and nations through the bold faith of our brothers and sisters. 
Lord, we continue to lift up our hearts of worship to you at this time. We pray um, that our act of worship will be pleasing to you as we honor you through the hearing of your word. We pray that your, your will will be done um, and give you praise for all that you have done and for all that you will do for us and through us as individuals and as a body of Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, amen. Thank you so much for that prayer. We can all be seated. And uh, at this time, um, if there are any children, uh, this is a great time for you to uh, join your children's ministry program. Um, so before we get into the message, like we do periodically, we have something called each part uh, from Ephesians chapter 4, where we really believe that the Holy Spirit is working through each part of our community. Um, and there are just a lot of really just amazing things that the Holy Spirit is doing. Um, and today we actually have somebody, uh, our sister Susan, who wanted to share about how God has been working through her. So if we can just give her a warm hand as she comes forth. <clears throat> and uh, as she comes forth, just want to remind you, speak into the microphone loudly and slowly because most people get really nervous. So thank you. Okay, hi everyone. Uh, my name is Susan, and I've been a member of this church community for about three and a half years. Uh, today, I wanted to share my testimony about the recovery of my back and God's promise of Emmanuel being with us. I started experiencing minor lower back pain in high school. It was usually triggered from carrying heavy items or repetitive bending. However, around the time I actually started coming out to New Hope in 2016, I began to feel pressure in my lower back, and I would take an Advil or a muscle relaxant to help me get through the workday. In January of 2018, three weeks uh, after I got married, sorry, in January of 2019, <laughs> three weeks after I got married, uh, pain began to radiate down my legs and toes. I was unable to stand or walk for more than a minute. I went to see my doctor to schedule an MRI, and my MRI showed a nine millimeter protrusion, a disc herniation between my fifth lumbar vertebrae and my first sacral vertebrae. So in addition, I was diagnosed with spinal stenosis and disc degeneration. In other words, if you can imagine your spinal column, there are little disc cushions between each of your vertebrae, which resembles a donut with jelly filling inside. And what happened in my herniated disc is that the jelly inside of the disc got pushed out of my spinal column and began compressing the nerve roots connected to my legs. My scheduled appointment to see a neurosurgeon would not be for another eight months because I was not considered an emergency case. This pain was constant and unrelenting, every day for 24 hours. It started with a numbness, and I could not feel my legs or toes. It then worsened to a horrible burning sensation, and eventually constant shooting nerve pain in my legs. At this point, I had to let go of all my extracurriculars of playing on the church praise band and my community orchestra. For the next six months, I lived life lying down on the floor. 
unable to move, even eating and drinking laying down. It was difficult, but possible. Sitting and standing was so painful, so you can imagine the trials of trying to shower or use the bathroom. I lost my mobility and my independence. I was now completely reliant on my husband, Sujin, to do everything. This was not how I wanted to begin married life. The pain was so unrelenting that I was living minute to minute. Unable to even breathe normally, I would take shallow breaths to minimize any movement of my spine. The usual nighttime routine was taking CBD oil or Tylenol 3s every few hours until I was jolted awake because the medication had worn off. I went to every therapy I could, acupuncture, massage, physio, osteo, chiro, but it only seemed to make me worse. The biggest pill I had to swallow was having to give in and forfeit to using a walker to help me move around. I felt very self-conscious as a walker was a, such a visible sign of my disability. I had such a sense of hopelessness and despair. When you are immobile, you really have nothing else but your own thoughts to keep you company. And when you are in so much pain with no end in sight, Honestly, you begin to experience no fear of death. There was a moment in all of this where I felt everything had changed. Even though I was still in agony, I felt that God reached my heart through my husband's words. I was reminded not to put my faith in the hope that I would be healed in this life, but to put my faith in Jesus and trust him when he says, I am with you always. I will never be alone and Jesus will always be with me. By God's grace, about six months after all this started, my pain began to drastically subside. I was able to move around without my walker and when my appointment with my neurosurgeon finally arrived in November of 2019, he looked at my MRI from nine months prior and asked me about my pain level. I told him that most of the pain had subsided but there were still a few moments of pain here and there. He asked me this because if I was still in a lot of pain, he would have recommended back surgery. I had a second MRI appointment two months ago and my scan showed significant improvement. As of today, I cannot say that I have been completely healed and it may continue to be a lifelong journey. However, I just want to encourage any of you here at Uptown going through any hardships, whether it be physical, relational, emotional, spiritual, to not solely put your faith in the hope that the storm will pass, but to trust in God's promise of Emmanuel that he will always be with us. Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing um, that testimony and just uh, allowing us to be a part of uh, what you went through. And I know for some of us, we remember praying for our sister Susan, whether you're a part of her impact group or even during Sunday service. And it just goes to show that God does indeed answer our prayers. He does work in our lives. Uh, unfortunately or fortunately, it doesn't really answer our prayers or work in our lives according to our expectations. But God is nonetheless there. Um, and I just love what she just reminded all of us that because of Jesus' death and resurrection, he is always present with us, and that is truly an anchoring joy. Um, and believe it or not, I feel like a lot of these themes and insights uh, actually relate to today's sermon. So um, let's jump into that. And I do understand that it's daylight savings. 
Um, people are probably sleeping in. I also understand that a lot of people are feeling a little sick. Um, and especially with what's going on with the coronavirus, a lot of people are taking uh, wisely pre uh, cautionary measures. So for those of us who are participating in the live stream, we miss you and we hope that you can still experience worship with us through the live stream. So um, last week we had our Compassion Sunday. Uh, we'll provide some follow-up announcements to that. Uh, the response was very overwhelming, not just here at Uptown, but all three campuses of New Hope, as well as the Russian ministry, the Korean ministry. Um, yeah, we have a soundbite and we have a video that we're going to show a little bit later. And they were just absolutely blown away by the spirit of generosity from our church communities. Um, but the week before that, we talked about uh, Genesis chapter 39. We talked about the life of Joseph. And we're going to continue on in that sermon series. And um, yeah, as you can tell from the title, Broken Expectations and Backseat Driving. Uh, I don't know. How many of us know what the phrase backseat driving is? Okay, so some of us. How many of us are backseat drivers? Nobody's. Okay. <laughs> So there's one person who's going to admit, in case you don't know what a backseat driver is, is somebody who is not driving in the driver's seat. This person is one of the passengers, but this person acts as if this person should be driving. So this person is always complaining to the driver, you should have taken a left, your left turn needs to be wider, your right turn needs to be sharper, you should have braked, you're not going fast enough, you should weave into this lane, so on and so forth. They're always complaining. They're always arguing with the driver. And study shows, uh, there's actually a research study that was conducted where backseat driving is not only incredibly annoying to the driver, but it's actually dangerous. Um, there have been accidents because the driver is just so preoccupied, distracted by the arguments and the complaints by the backseat driver. And the reason why I mentioned backseat driving, especially in today's sermon, is sometimes when our expectations are not being met, when they are being broken, sometimes in our lives, we are kind of like backseat drivers. Uh, I think for some of us, we have surrendered our lives to God and we are saying, God, you take the wheel of my life. But although that is the way we try to live our lives, it's, we have the tendency to sometimes backseat drive. And we are complaining, God, I think you should have taken that left turn. I think you're not driving fast enough. I think you're being a little too harsh on the road, so on and so forth. And wow, this really um, makes the drive very uncomfortable and distressful. Uh, I know for some of us as well, um, maybe in our lives, we haven't yet uh, allowed God to take the driving seat. And we're going to talk about that a little bit more as well. Uh, but I think for the most of us, I would say that we are probably not necessarily backseat drivers because I don't think we would explicitly and overtly complain to God, but in our hearts and in our minds, we're wondering, oh, God, I don't think my life should be like this. Um, and what we end up doing is instead of complaining to God directly, we end up just kind of shutting God off from different spheres of our lives. So for instance, let's say in your work life, things are incredibly stressful. What we do is maybe we won't complain to God about our work, but instead, we will just work without even thinking about God's involvement in character, um, which is equally harmful to our relationships with God. So we're going to unpack all of this through the life of Joseph. 
Um, like we do every week, we have a Q&A, so the questions are going to be, the, the phone number is going to be displayed on every slide. And please, um, I encourage us to participate in this. The questions that we've been receiving over the past few weeks, all of them have been so helpful. Um, if there are any general prayer requests that you want to text through, please do so. All of these things are anonymous, and we'll be able to reflect upon these during the service. Let me pray for us one more time. We'll jump right into the passage, which is Genesis chapter 40. Our Father, we thank you so much that you are a God who is truly faithful. Uh, your track record is flawless. We see it not only in our own lives. We see it not only in the testimony of Susan. But when we think about how you have been working through human history, God, you have been truly faithful. Um, and we pray for every single one of us that we would grow in our maturity to allow you to truly take the steering wheel of our lives. But at the same time, we confess to you that sometimes we complain. Sometimes we doubt. Sometimes we are skeptical. Sometimes we shut you off completely as a coping mechanism when our expectations are not being met. And Holy Spirit, I pray that through this passage, may you remind us that you are so present in every aspect, every sphere of our lives, and that you are worthy of our trust. So help us, Lord, to surrender all of our burdens, all of our problems, all the anxieties into your hands and to be able to recognize that you are truly with us. We thank you and we pray all these things in your son's name. Amen. So like I mentioned, we're going to continue on in the sermon series. If you weren't here two weeks ago, we talked about Genesis chapter 39, where Joseph was sold into slavery. Um, and then not only was he sold into slavery, but then we talked about how uh, he rose to the top because he happened to be a slave of a guy named of Potiphar, who was a high official of Pharaoh. But then Potiphar's wife um, was sexually desirous of Joseph. She made a move on Joseph. Joseph spurned her. And then the wife framed him so that Potiphar thought that Joseph was the one trying to make a move on Potiphar's wife. So he sent Joseph to prison, another low point in Joseph's life. But in prison, we saw that God's faithfulness, his presence was with Joseph. So the prisoner ward actually gave Joseph a lot of authority and a lot of freedom, even within prison. This is where we're at in Genesis 40. Joseph is currently in prison. So let's read this. So sometime after this, uh, we don't know how long, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. And Pharaoh put both of them, the cupbearer and the chief baker, into custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison where Joseph was confined. And I'm just going to unpack some of these things as we go through the story. And the first thing that I really want to mention is cupbearer and baker. So there are, these apparently are two really important titles for Pharaoh. Uh, Cupbearer, I think for many of us, we can kind of understand. Uh, so whenever the king is about to drink his drinks, wine, whatever it is, the cupbearer is the one who brings the cup to the king, and the cupbearer sips the very first sip. And the reason why the cupbearer needs to be very trusted is because if somebody is trying to assassinate the king, if somebody is trying to harm the king, one common way is to poison the drink. So therefore, the cupbearer needs to be incredibly loyal. He takes the first sip on behalf of Pharaoh. Uh, so it's somebody who needs to be, uh, has to have the confidence of Pharaoh. The baker is also a really important official. Um, and as far as the baker, why is it important? 
Uh, I guess the king just really liked his baked goods and pastries. I don't know. I can't really unpack that. Um, I think the significance of that is pretty similar to our modern contemporary day as well. But either way, both the cupbearer and the baker, important to the king, but both of them, for whatever reason, they offended the king so badly that Pharaoh, the king, he also casted them down to prison. Now, once again, like I mentioned, Joseph at this point, he is the top dog in the prison. And the cupbearer and the baker, they are casted into the prison, but it's in the prison where Joseph has a lot of authority, which is interesting. We go on. The captain of the guard, he appointed Joseph to be with them. So again, Joseph has authority over the cupbearer and the baker, and Joseph attended them. They continued for some time in custody. We don't know how long. And one night they both dreamed. The cupbearer and the baker, they both had a dream. Uh, who were confined in the prison, each his own dream, and each dream with its own interpretation. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. So I think for many of us, I'm sure we've experienced a dream in the past, and it may have been a dream that felt so real that you were just so startled. Or a dream that was so random, maybe very unsettling, a little disturbing, and you don't know what to do with this dream. And both the cupbearer and the baker, on the same night, they had this type of dream. And Joseph could tell that these guys were shook. So he sees that they were troubled. And Joseph approaches them, and he's wondering, you know, what, what's, what's wrong? So verse 7, Joseph asked Pharaoh's officers, again, cupbearer and the baker, who are with him in custody in his master's house, why are your faces downcast today? You guys look like there's something bothering you. And they said to him, we have had dreams, and there is no one to interpret these dreams. And Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. So the chief bearer told his dream to Joseph and said to him, in my dream there was a vine before me, dot, dot, dot. And what's interesting is these guys have these disturbing, unsettling dreams. And Joseph not only happens to be the guy who has authority over the cupbearer and the baker, but if you remember, if you've been with us with the sermon series back in Genesis chapter 37, Joseph is a man of dreams. Joseph has been blessed with really vivid, God-given, divinely inspired dreams. And when it comes to dreams, this is right up his alley. This is right up his domain. Joseph knows about dreams. He knows how to interpret them. So when he asks, uh, when they tell him, we have had dreams and there is no one to interpret them, Joseph says, do not interpretations belong to God. Tell me. I am an expert in dreams. Um, it's almost like that meme. Like, does anybody follow memes? The popular meme, Willy Wonka, where he's like, please tell me more about whatever. That's exactly what Joseph is doing. He's saying, you have dreams? You're disturbed because you don't know what the interpretations are? Guess what? I am a man who is an expert at dreams. But there's something remarkable here. Not only is Joseph coincidentally having authority over these two officials, coincidentally an expert in dreams, and God placed these disturbing dreams for the cupbearer and the baker, but we see something even more remarkable. Do you notice in verse 8, he says, do not interpretations belong to God? And for some of us, we're wondering, what's so significant about this? But this is the beauty of going through a sermon series, is when we first saw Joseph, 
in Genesis chapter 3, you can look this up on your own if you weren't part of us. We saw Joseph, when he got dreams in the past, he was so boastful. He was so arrogant. When Joseph got dreams in the past, he was so quick to brag about this to his brothers, to his parents, to tell people, to flaunt himself, to flex, strut, whatever, and say, look at these important dreams that I have. And now all of a sudden, like I mentioned earlier, because of the highs and lows, because of the different difficult, uncomfortable circumstances that God has placed in Joseph's life, we see remarkable maturity already where he says, yes, I am an expert with dreams and interpretations, but I have learned that all interpretations come from God, God himself. And, you know, one of the things I love about Susan's testimony, and I think even Joy, when she shared a few weeks ago, and I think we can all affirm this, is yes, sometimes God works in our lives in uncomfortable situations, in ways that really go against our preferences. But when the dust settles, we recognize that through those situations, God has truly matured us, truly grown our perspective. So no longer is it about us, but it's really about, man, do not these interpretations belong to God? Should I not trust and rely, appreciate, depend upon God more than the things that I see or even in my own abilities? And that's exactly what we see in Joseph. We'll continue on in the, in the passage because that's not the main point of this message. So the chief bearer, he explains the, uh, the dream. In my dream, there was a vine before me, dot, dot, dot. And on the vine, there were three branches. As soon as these branches budded, its blossoms shot forth and the clusters ripened into grapes. So again, the cupbearer is explaining to Joseph the dream. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand in my dream. And I took the grapes, I pressed them into Pharaoh's cup, and I placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. And that's it. That was my dream. And Joseph, like I mentioned, expert at dreams, expert with interpretations. He says, then Joseph said to, to him, I know exactly what this dream is about. This is its interpretation. The three branches that you dreamed about, they represent three days. And the three days is important. In three days, three days from now, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office. Right now, you are confined in prison. Right now, you may wonder, when are you ever going to be released? But in three days, three short days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and he will restore your position. You will experience freedom. You will experience the favor of Pharaoh once again. And you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly, just like your good life before, when you were his cupbearer. Only, Joseph is saying, in three days, this is all going to happen. But remember me, because I'm still in prison. When it is well with you, when your life is prospering, please do me the kindness to mention to Pharaoh, and so get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of Hebrews. And here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit. So Joseph is looking at this as, wow, man, it can't be coincidence. I've already experienced God orchestrating these highs and lows in my life. And through it all, God has always been with me. And through it all, somehow in unexpected, mysterious ways, I see God working in my life. It's not according to my preferences. It's not according to my expectations, but I trust that he is with me. And he's thinking to myself, wait a minute. 
God is the reason why I am in prison, but God is also the reason why I am the top dog in the prisoner's ward. And God is also the reason why the cupbearer, the baker, is under my custody. And God is also the reason that the cupbearer and the baker both had a disturbing dream that I can actually interpret. And not only that, in this dream, in three days, the cupbearer is going to be freed. Maybe this is how God is going to work through my own deliverance. In three days, the cupbearer just needs to remember me, just needs to tell Pharaoh who I am and my abilities and how I was framed wrongly. And surely, not only will this cupbearer experience freedom in three days, but I'm sure I'm going to experience freedom in three days as well. Joseph is tracking. He's recognizing how God is working, and he is getting excited. He sees the light under the tunnel. So we'll continue. Now, when the chief baker saw that the interpretation was favorable for the cupbearer, he opens up to Joseph and he says, okay, that's his dream. Let me tell you what my dream is about. I also had a dream. There were three cake baskets on my head. And the, in the uppermost basket, there were all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh, but the birds were eating it out of the basket and on my head. I don't understand what this dream is about. And the baker's thinking, maybe in three days I'll also be free as well. And Joseph answered and said, this is an interpretation. Again, he is an expert with interpretations. The three baskets are also three days. And in three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head, but from you, and hang you on a tree. And the birds will eat the flesh from you on the third day, which was, so, I mean, basically, this was not a very favorable interpretation for the baker. And Joseph is saying, yes, this, these dreams are very favorable for the cupbearer, but for you, baker, unfortunately, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but it doesn't look good for you. But the main focal point of this passage is on the third day, just like Joseph interpreted through God's wisdom, which was Pharaoh's birthday, coincidentally, Pharaoh made a feast for all his servants and lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among the servants. He restored the chief bearer to his position, just like Joseph interpreted, and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker as Joseph interpreted them. But the main point is, yet the cup, chief cupbearer, he did not remember Joseph. Instead, he forgot about Joseph. Just three days. And Joseph is thinking, wait a minute. God, I could have sworn that this is how you're going to orchestrate my deliverance. And in three days, the cupbearer, he completely forgets. And not only that, if you look at Genesis chapter 41 as a sneak preview, after two whole years, we, we don't know what happens. The next point in Joseph's life, and I love one of the Q&As that came in a few weeks ago, and you can see the answer of it in the middle of your bulletin, is how long did these different events in Joseph's life transpire? We don't know the details, but we do know that in prison, after he successfully interpreted the dreams of the cupbearer and the baker, after he saw the deliverance of the cupbearer, he could have sworn that that deliverance meant that he would also be free. It took at least two years 
before the next pivotal change in Joseph's life. And in those two years of prison, Joseph, maybe he could have been doing some backseat driving. He could have been wondering, God, I could have sworn that this is the way that you're going to work in my life. Um, you know, I think for many of us who have lived life, uh, we recognize, yeah, life hardly ever goes according to our own expectations. That's just the way the unpredictable characteristic of life is. Uh, in the gospel, there is a tremendous hope, and I'll unpack this in a second, where through the unexpected situations of our, of our lives, we know that our God is in control. And he is using these difficult situations in order to make us more like Jesus, in order for us to better appreciate the gospel, all these wonderful things. But when we're going through that firestorm, when we're going through that uncertainty, man, we're not necessarily thinking about Jesus. Um, so I guess I've been here in the Toronto area for five years. I moved up from Philadelphia, which is down in the States. That's where I grew up, Philadelphia, in West Philadelphia, born and raised. Um, but yeah, like Philadelphia, the move was quite, quite the challenge. Uh, we thought everything would line up perfectly. Uh, one of the primary reasons why we moved up was because I began my PhD studies at the University of Toronto. Um, but even there, I wasn't really sure if God was calling our family out of Philadelphia. Both my wife and I, all of our networks, when we talk about professional network, relational network, family network, ministry network, all of our networks are firmly rooted in Philadelphia. So moving up to Toronto would have been a huge change. Uh, our kids were five, three, and one. So um, in some ways it was easy because they didn't really have an opinion other than our five-year-old. But in some ways it was difficult because when they're that age group, they have so much junk that you have to pack. Um, it's just really hectic, chaotic with their sleep schedules and all those different things. And uh, as we're praying, I was thinking, you know, God, is this something that you want us to do? Um, and we're just trying to discern God's will. And as I was just doing some research in the life of Toronto, I didn't know too much about Toronto other than I knew that it was a pretty vibrant city. And I thought it was, you know, one of the really important cities in the world. But I didn't know too much about what, does it, what, what is it like to live there. Uh, taxes are incredibly high. Like, what's it like? Um, living expenses, so on and so forth. And the more I researched about Toronto, the more I realized, wow, it's... it's um, as much as it's a great city to live, it could be difficult, especially for outsiders. Um, I think I was looking up, uh, there is a publication called McLean? McLean? McLean. And is that, that's somewhat reputable, right? It's kind of reliable. Yeah, so I was reading up all their articles and they were saying how Torontonians are very territorial about their jobs. So employers, they may not give jobs to people who they think are outside of Toronto. And I'm thinking, okay, I'm not a Torontonian. What does that mean for me? Uh, living expenses, housing market was on the rise at that point. So I felt like, oh man, it's, it's going to be tough. Um, you know, the university is providing me with, you know, scholarships and all these different things I'm thankful for. But as far as that being sufficient for a family of five, absolutely not. Um, and again, my wife was really becoming very established down in the States. So we're praying, we said, okay, if God opens a door where my wife somehow finds a job, 
then yeah, we'll consider it. And um, next thing, you know, she sent out her, her resume just tentatively. We weren't really expecting much. And then she gets a phone call from one of the medical practices offering her a position. Well, you know, first interviewing her, so on and so forth, but eventually offering her a position. And we're thinking maybe this is God working in our lives. And we were feeling a little hopeful. But then we recognize that for her, she's a physician. In order for her to practice in, this, uh, in Ontario, she needs to get a new medical license for the province of Ontario. So we're wondering, okay, what does that take? Um, how difficult can it be? And it turns out to be a lot of different hoops. So we're thinking, okay, because of these hoops, she has to find a primary supervisor who's going who's gonna to vouch for Jeannie. Like they don't know her. We don't have any family ties. And we're wondering, okay, maybe this is a door that's being closed. So we felt a little let down. But then she happened to find somebody who's willing to be her primary supervisor. And we're thinking, okay, maybe God is working through this situation. And we look into this a little bit more and we recognize, okay, she not only needs a primary supervisor, but she needs a secondary supervisor. Who's going to be another physician that's going to vouch for her? We thought that the first one was a miracle in and of itself. How are we going to find a second one? So Jeannie, she, again, we have no contacts. She posts a message on Facebook saying, hey, is anybody willing to be my secondary uh, supervisor? Um, and somebody signs up and says, hey, we're willing to be your secondary supervisor. So we're thinking, okay, maybe God is working in unexpected ways. He's opening these doors. Um, Let's go for it. We bite the bullets. We, uh, you know, after a lot of prayer, a lot of counsel from our pastors back at home, we bite the bullet and we say, okay, we're going to be committed. We feel like this is the way God is moving. Um, and we're pretty excited because, you know, we, we've done our budget. Uh, we've done the foreign exchange rate. We ca calculated the taxes and everything, and everything seemed very good. Um, her future employer booked a bunch of patients for her. So we were going to move in August. Uh, she was going to have patients to see in August into September, October, and her network was already, like her patient network was already on the rise. But then there was a problem because the medical license that we applied for, for whatever reason, they didn't approve. They, um, what was it? They deferred till their next meeting. And this credentialing committee, they only meet once a month. So we're thinking, okay, we didn't get it in July. August is going to be really tight because if she doesn't get it in August, then she's going to have to cancel all of her patients. And who knows if they're going to be willing to see my wife after they get canceled. August rolls around and again, they defer. And all of the August patients just like that, out the window. And we're thinking, okay, our budget, we can absorb that. But, man, August, like, that's going to be tough. Um, but we think, you know what? Our God, he's faithful. If he is calling us out, he'll continue to provide for us. So we go on ahead with the move. And then we realize that as we move, uh, we're at the border um, by Buffalo. And we're looking at our visas. And I'm just reading through the, the visas just a little bit more closely because we're waiting. I have nothing to do. And I read Jeannie's visa, and it says that you're allowed to do a bunch of things, but you're prohibited in providing any kind of child care and providing any kind of medical care. Now I thought, hmm, 
this might be relevant for my wife because she's a physician. So I asked Jeannie, uh, Jeannie, did you, did you read this about how in our visa, you're, you're prohibited from providing any kind of medical care? And she looks at it, her face turns red, and then it turns white. And I'm thinking, okay, she hasn't read that. And then we're wondering, okay, even if the, med- the credentialing committee reviews her application, when they look at her visa, there is no way they're going to pass because she's prohibited from providing any kind of medical care. So we're scrambling around. We're asking people who have gone through our similar situation, and there are very few people, believe it or not, and we're wondering how can we get this stipulation lifted from her visa? And, man, like we have to go through so many hoops in order to do that. We have to get her get a medical checkup. Uh, So we find some family physician who's able to give her a medical checkup in order for this visa stipulation to be lifted off. But then this family doctor only accepts cash. We have no Canadian cash because, because again, we're just Americans and we only have credit cards. And it's a $300 payment that we have to pay. And we look at the physician saying, we're so sorry. We have no Canadian cash. The family physician looks at us. She feels sorry for us and that she says, don't worry. It looks like you've been through a lot. I'll, I'll do this for free. And we're thinking, oh my goodness, like, what, what have we got ourselves into? September rolls around. Our budget is depleting. And at this point, I'm wondering, we're looking at our budget. We're thinking, we can't survive past October. Uh, I think we have to move back to Philadelphia, which would be really embarrassing because, again, all of our social ties are back there. But I told all of them, you know, God is calling us out. We're going to take a step of faith. And for us to come back three months later, pretty embarrassing. So we're thinking, oh, my goodness, what's going to happen? And as a dad, uh, I think a lot of dads, you can relate. I just felt like a miserable failure. I felt like I completely made the worst decisions of our family's life. And I don't even know how we're going to eat dinner. We're thinking about getting the cheapest food. Frozen pizza happened. There was a sale for frozen pizza. That was our diet for the entire week. Again, our kids are five, three, and one. I'm constantly trying to make them grow more because they're a little bit on the smaller side. And um, yeah, for whatever reason, they're going through their growing spur at this point, but we don't have the money or the resources to feed them. And I remember there was that one night, uh, Jude comes up to me. We're eating frozen pizza, and it looks like he's really loving it. And I'm always, back in the States, I'm always trying to make them eat another bite. Whatever it takes. I use all the different tactics. And finally, Jude says, Daddy, the pizza was so yummy. Can I have another slice of pizza? And back in the States, if he would have said this, I would have given him like, five pies. I would have just stuffed all that down his throat. I would have given him whatever he wanted. But at that moment, I'm looking at the freezer and I'm thinking, I don't know if we have enough food for the rest of the week. And I have to say, Jude, I'm sorry. Uh, We don't have any more pizza. Um, Tomorrow, you can eat more pizza. And Man, as a dad, as a husband, for my wife, she was also stressed out. Tremendous guilt in my life. Man, that, that period, I, I did not eat dinner for weeks. Um, part of it is because I just didn't have an appetite out of guilt. Part of it was just, just to save food for the, for the family. And I'm just thinking, God, 
I thought you were working in my life. All those open doors, all those coincidences, I, I was tracking with you. God, I was trusting in you. Why are you leaving us hanging now? And yeah, maybe our situation wasn't two whole years, but I was doing a lot of backseat driving. I'll be honest. And I wish that when I, I wish I could tell you, when I prayed during those nights, I was praying these theologically lofty prayers, prayers that express a faith of gold. But man, those prayers, man, it was just backseat driving of God. My expectations, you are not meeting any one of them. Where are you? You know, it's one thing if you want me to go through this humbling experience, but for my kids, five, three, and one, God, where are you? And I think a lot of us can relate to a story like Joseph's, to a story like mine. And even right now, you may be going through an experience where expectation after expectation, not only are they not being met, but they are being shattered and broken right before your eyes. And maybe for some of us, we don't have the courage to backseat drive. Maybe we won't have the courage to complain to God. But I think one coping mechanism that I sense is instead of explicitly complaining, what we do is we shut God out of those spheres of our lives. If your family situation is going haywire, if your work situation is going haywire, instead of complaining to God, what we do is, okay, you know what, God? I just need to buckle down. And we just completely disregard his character and involvement in our work life, in our family life, in our academic life, whatever it is. And one thing that we see so far in the Bible reading plan, especially in the life of Joseph, and specifically in Genesis chapter 40, is God is doing something. He is present. He has not abandoned Joseph. We heard it even from the lips of uh, Susan herself, that there was not a day that went by. Maybe her feelings may have said otherwise, but there was not a day that went by, a pain that she experienced, that Jesus was not there right with her. And similarly for us, yes, expectations. I cannot promise that they're going to be good. I cannot promise that they're going to be met according to your preferences. But one thing that I can promise, because it's not my promise, it's really a promise from the word of God, is that our God is with you. You know, as I've been thinking and praying through the life of Joseph, as I've been praying through our congregation, the verse that continually comes up that succinctly summarizes this point is Romans 8.28. I know for some of us, Romans 8.28, that's one of the most cited verses, but it's also one of the most abused and misunderstood verses as well. So I want to take an opportunity as a way to kind of summarize all of this to examine Romans 8.28, what is it really speaking about? And let me just read it for us in case some of us are not familiar. I'm also going to read 29 because that is just as important. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Not just some things, not just when our expectations are met. All things are being worked I'm sorry, I cannot connect the dots for your situation. And I'm sorry, I know for some of us, we are going through legitimate heartache, legitimate pain, sufferings, 
I don't want to undermine any of those things. But according to scripture, all things, including those things, are being used for good. For those who are called according to God's purpose, for those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, Jesus Christ, in order that Jesus might be the firstborn among many brothers. Let me unpack this a little bit more so that we truly understand this. Is when I say all things, when the Bible says all things, again, no exceptions. It's not just in this verse. You can look at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11. You can look at James chapter 4, verse 15. It's littered throughout the Proverbs. It's littered throughout the minor prophets, major prophets, Genesis to Revelation. It screams that our God, he is sovereign over everything. And in your life, there are no accidents. Everything, even though we may not see the rationale of it at the time, there is a promise that all things are being worked for good. But there are some, I wouldn't say conditions, but it's not that straightforward because this promise is specific towards those who love God and those who are according, called according to his purpose. In other words, this promise that God will work in all of your situations for your good is given specifically to those who have submitted to the gospel of Jesus Christ. As you submit to the gospel of Jesus Christ, that enables you to love God. As you submit to the gospel of Jesus Christ, that means you have been called according to his purpose. And as we sang about earlier, as our sister Susan reminded us, the gospel, I know for some of us we're new, we're visitors. The gospel, what do we believe in? Is we believe in a God who created everything that we see. And out of all the beautiful things that he created, he created it methodically. He created it with great passion, with great pride. This world is beautiful. This universe is just breathtaking. But God has given all of that over to humanity. We have dominion over this earth in order that through this blessing of being humans, of having dominion over this world, God wants to establish an intimate relationship with us, a relationship out of love. But as humans, collectively or individually, what do we do with this blessed gift that God has given us? What do we do with his love that he's trying to reach out towards us? Is we reject him. Instead, we desire to live our lives our own way. Instead, we want to be the driver's seat in our own life. And that is what the Bible calls sin. And because God is holy, that sin needed to be paid for. And although God could have easily dismissed us, he doesn't need us. Instead, what he does is he sends his one and only son, die on that cross to cancel all of our sin. That's why all those songs talked about how once we were enemies, but now we are seated at his table. And because of Jesus' death and because he resurrected, we are guaranteed that God will continue to bless us, continue to love us. And one of the blessings is that, like we read, all things work together for our good. Everything. No accidents in life. We see that in the life of Joseph. Yes, he thought he was going to be free in three days, but instead he had to wait at least two more years. That was not an accident. God was using that for Joseph's good. Now, the next question that you may be wondering is, how is it good? 
You might be thinking even in your life, how is it good that I lost my loved one last year? How is it good that this relationship is broken? How is it good that I've been laid off? You may, I may be asking during that time, how is it good that I couldn't adequately provide for my kids and I was basically starving myself for weeks on end? Joseph could have been asking, how is it good that I had to be in prison for two extra years? And we have to redefine what good is. And that's why verse 29 is supremely important. Whenever you quote Romans 8.28, whenever you hear anybody quote Romans 8.28, you have to understand what the context is. What is good? For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, Jesus Christ. What is good in your life? What is the ultimate aim? What is the ultimate purpose of God putting you through these un- met expectations, broken expectations, your life oscillating back and forth. What is the purpose of all of it? How can we consider that good? It is because God is conforming us to become more like Jesus Christ. And that's why when I, we saw in Joseph, that one quote, he said, does not all interpretations, do not all interpretations come from God. We see the humility of Christ in Joseph. And in your own life, yes, I want to commiserate with you. I want to cry with you. I want to grieve along with you, mourn with you when you go through really difficult seasons. Yes, I want to be there. But I also want to be a reminder. This is not wasted. Our God is not absent. This is not done accidentally. God, through this, is making us more like Jesus. God is making us more like Jesus. Again, some of us who grew up in the church, we may take that for granted. Some of us who haven't grown up in the church, you're wondering, who is Jesus? Who is this Jesus guy? You read the Gospels. And you think about the life of Jesus. If Jesus lived on earth right now, Amazing. We would just be so overwhelmed by the way that he is able to love anybody and everybody. When Jesus stepped on foot 2,000 years ago, he loved the people that society thought were subhuman. Prostitutes, tax collectors, lepers, people that society, they wouldn't even be in the same room. Jesus not only loved them, but he physically touched them. Jesus had a circle of friends, his disciples, 12 of them. These are the guys that Jesus poured out his heart and soul, loved them, ate with them, dined with them, did everything with them. And all of these 12 disciples, they betrayed him. They let him down. And Jesus knew this. Jesus knew full well of the failures and the flaws of these 12 disciples. And yet Jesus loved them so radically, washing their feet, being patient with them, teaching them, praying for them. One of the 12 disciples betrayed him to the point where it led to Jesus' arrest. Jesus loved humanity so much, 
even though he knew that it would be humanity that would crucify him on that cross. And yet, while he was hanging on that cross, physically, the pain must have been so excruciating. Socially, the utter shame of being naked and bleeding, high and lifted up on a cross, which was the most grotesque form of punishment. He said, bring it on. The pain of being separated from the Father, bring it on. Because he wanted to love humanity. Not just collectively, yes, collectively, but specifically individuals like me, you, despite all of our own brokenness, despite of all of our sin, this Jesus is the perfect embodiment of what it means to be a human. And what God is promising all of us who submit to this gospel is God will use anything and everything so that we will conform to that. Wow. That is such a blessing. Uh, we'll talk more about the life of Joseph. Um, yeah, I'm actually going to ask the band to come forth. Uh, there's really not much more in this message. I just want us to just reflect and respond. It's a very simple truth. If we can also all rise as we, um, you know, one of the things that we do here is at the end of the day, sermons, it's not just my opinion. Um, yes, my opinions factor in, but at the end of the day, we believe that the Holy Spirit speaks through his word. Genesis chapter 40 was the passage for today. We believe that the Holy Spirit is here present. God himself is present. And he wants to speak to us. He wants to remind us that we can trust him. Yes, our life is hectic. But the promise, one of the blessings of the gospel, no accidents. He does not leave us as orphans. He does not abandon us, but he is so present with us. And it's actually through the difficulties, it's through the broken expectations where God can use in order to make us more like Jesus, in order for us to have a deeper appreciation for the gospel. So I just want to give us an opportunity to just reflect. Um, what do you think is the Holy Spirit speaking to you about? What is he placing on your heart? Uh, as we respond to the Holy Spirit, if you want to text away any questions or prayer requests, please do not hesitate to do so. The phone number is there for you to text away. But I just want to give us an opportunity in silence between us and God.